organization has just recently started, and their idea is they bring in uh, seminary students as interns to New England uh, to do expository preaching. So every Sunday, these interns go out to different pulpits all over New England. It might be in Maine, it might be in Vermont, and today it's at South Shore Baptist Church in Hingham, and the, it's an organization that's just newly started. And their idea is to both give seminarians the opportunity to learn how to preach week after week. It's the only way to learn how to preach. You have to preach. And you, just have, you know, it's like anything. You have to do it over and over. Uh, it's, it's an opportunity to get expository preaching into churches. And I talked to the director, and he has this really cool, like, 30-year vision, he calls it. That, that the, the, the organization would become so well-known and people would, would trust them, so that eventually when churches are in searching for a full-time pastor... They would say, well, you know, we could call that, uh, what is that place again, New England Center for Expository Preaching? Yeah, we had a good experience. Let's, let's call them. And, and maybe over time, we can begin leavening New England with expository preaching, which is what, you know, it's all about as far as reviving the church and bringing life to the whole body of Christ. So we have a, a seminarian with us. His name is Weston Green. Come on up here, Weston. Uh, where are you from, Weston? I am from Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, actually, a nearby city, Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America. Yeah. Is, is that what's up with your colors, the whole Tennessee thing? Well, actually not really, because if it was Tennessee orange, it would be much, much brighter and much, much deeper. Yeah. So this is sort of like, it's sort of like a, a Tennessee statement, but kind of muted for us up here in New England. That's correct. It's, it's yeah. a little mellowed down. But, but if you were to prick me, then you might see the deep orange. Yeah, that's right. Very good. So uh, we're, we're delighted to have you with us. And, uh, and, and you know, the, the great thing is, it, it's not about the preacher. It's about the Word of God. And that's the great thing about expository preaching is whether the preacher has, you know, been an orator for 40 years or just at a seminary, if the person's opening up the Bible and they're preaching from it, that's what touches your heart and that's what God uses to bring transformation to our lives. So anyway, we're excited to have you, Weston, and uh, just delighted to open the pulpit to you. So bring us God's word, brother. I'm certainly glad for the opportunity to be here that's afforded to me by, by this church, South Shore. I know uh, for, from the time I got here, about 8 o'clock in the morning, I, I really noticed the sense that this church seems to breathe in and out Jesus. Uh, I know especially during the prayer time before the service is when I really noticed that especially. And, and, and that's first and foremost the, the kind of passion that we need to have and in order to spread Jesus, we we say that you know, we want to preach His Word. That that's about Him, and we want to do it in New England, and we want to do it in America, and we want to do it in the world. And I'm glad that we've been introduced to some missionaries who are going to go and take that to, to the uttermost places. And I think the the New England Center has this passion, especially for expository preaching and for New England. And once I saw it, I said, hey, uh, that sounds pretty cool. And so I emailed the guy, and, and we developed a contact uh, over the course of the last few months. And so I've been able to come up here from May to August and just get some experience preaching God's Word. And that's what I'm here to do today. Let me first tell you a story from my hometown in Alcoa, from my little elementary school that I attended. I was the second grader, probably 
seven or eight or however old second graders are. I don't really remember the times too much, but I do remember one particular day. I was sitting around. We were doing whatever second graders do. Uh, perhaps we were learning to read. Perhaps we were listening to a story. I, I'm not sure. But this girl comes up to me and she starts talking to me. She, she's also a second grader. And, and she starts talking to me about wanting to go out uh, with her. Which, uh, I mean, what, what do you do? You're second graders, you're chilling. Like, well, uh, I wasn't very interested, but it's like, well, that's cool, I guess. Uh, uh, I'm up with that. Just, just don't tell anybody. Just don't tell anybody. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've, I've got some new friends here. I'm new to this classroom. Um, can't have them know. Can't have them giving me a hard time. Well, she told. And so by the end of the school day, had all these people coming up to me saying, Oh, uh, guess what I heard? I, I heard you're going out with so-and-so. Um, right. <laughs> and so I was hurt. I, you know, I thought I had a commitment from her to not spread that around. But I was betrayed. She... <laughs> She, 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 she let the cat out of the bag. She told the information and it hurt and I was betrayed. Well, on this Patriot Day kind of a, a week where, where we celebrate the 4th of July, where we celebrate our independence and we, and we really are instilled with a sense of patriotism, uh, I recall a, time several years back where we, we found out that there had been a spy serving in the FBI for probably about 20 years is, is the time frame that he sold secrets to Russia. He was once a student of chemistry, Russian. Uh, he even dabbled into a little dentistry. But what we, we remember about him is that he sold secrets to Russia for that length of time. Valuable information that hurt our country. His name was Robert Hansen, and he's now serving in solitary confinement for about 23 hours of the day. But it wasn't just that he sold secrets. It wasn't just that the Russians had this information. It was that we felt betrayed as a country. We felt like there was a traitor among us who committed the most absurd kind of treason you know, there was a time when, when treason was actually considered even worse than murder. That, that betraying someone or even betraying a nation was considered that bad. Well, that was just one guy. Perhaps he had some accomplices. But that was one guy committing that to a nation. What if it was an entire nation betraying a single person? How would that feel? That's the kind of thing that the Gospel of Luke presents us with. He gives us this story of betrayal. It starts off small. It starts off in Jesus' inner circle, where one of his disciples betrays him, Judas. And then, and then a few of the disciples that he took to the garden to pray, they fell asleep on him. And in one of his darkest hours, in one of his most troubled hours, where he was praying to the Father and his sweat was like drops of blood. And then we find Peter, one of the close-knit in, in the group with Jesus. He disowns him three times. And then we get to this passage, where not only has his close friends betrayed him, 
But then a broader group, the Jewish leaders betray him. They betray him into the hands of official governors, Pilate and Herod. That's what we find in this text that I'm getting ready to read here in Luke 22, verses 66 through the 25th verse of chapter 23. And then Luke not only takes us from that small group to a larger group in the Jewish leaders, but he takes us to everyone that was around. At the end of this passage, we find the whole crowds, the whole multitude of them, screaming that Jesus be crucified. And so he was betrayed by the very people, by the very nation, by the very individuals that he came to serve, that he came to seek, that he came to save. And as we read this text and reflect on it, I think we'll find that we also were among them. Although we didn't, we weren't there in Palestine screaming necessarily, but our sin and our rebellion against God was just the same. And what Luke gives us here is representative of us, representative of the full spectrum of humanity. And so as we look through this, I want you to do two things. I want you to repent of your betrayal of Christ, to turn from that, and I also want you to remember His faithfulness. Because He is faithful. And even though He was betrayed, He was honest to, to what the Father sent Him in order to bring many sons to glory. Let me read this passage. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. And He said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, 
for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and for murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is a word from the Lord. And as Luke's taken us through to where the betrayal really finalizes and representing everyone around that there's no one here defending Jesus. And so as we reflect on the accusations and the condemnation that Jesus Christ received from these people, well, let's look first at the Jewish leaders as we do that. It, the Scriptures tell us that He was brought before them. Um, one of the other Gospels says that, that it was actually at night. And if that doesn't give you an impression of sort of a shady kind of a thing, just... Just remember that they had long been conspiring to put him to death. That uh, Also consider they were obviously offended by his coming into the temple and overturning the money changers and you know, really consumed by zeal for his father's house that really sort of undermined their authority. And when he taught the people, he taught as one with authority. And he taught in such a way as to condemn these Jewish leaders, these chief priests even, and the elders that, that represented the Jewish people. And what did they accuse him to Pilate of? They said he misled the nation, he's forbidding paying taxes, and he's claiming to be a king. He's misleading the nation as in he's subverting it. He's attempting to convince the people to rebel against the, the, the situation they're in under Roman rule. And he's also And they also say that Jesus was forbidding paying taxes to Caesar. We know in chapter 20 that obviously Jesus did quite the opposite, that he said, go ahead and pay those taxes. Give to Caesar what's Caesar, and to God what's God's. But I think Luke puts us in, in, such, a close, in such a close area from, from the time of that story to the time where they're accusing him in order to really emphasize just how desperate these Jewish leaders are to betray Christ. And, and we need to know that, that people who betray Christ, our, even ourselves, it's a very desperate action, that it, it doesn't just go a little ways. The, Satan's urge to get us to betray Christ goes all the way. And just like these Jewish leaders, it's not enough to, as Pilate said, have him punished and released. They were going for his death. They were going for condemning him to death. Additionally, they accused him of claiming to be a king. This is going to be the real deal breaker for Pilate here. 
Because that's something he can't put up with. He can't handle some rebellion of the Jewish people against you know the, the very provinces and, and the empire that he's there to serve against Rome. And so the, that's the best they present to Pilate. And then what, is, what does Pilate do when he receives Christ? It says that Pilate interviewed him, that he asked him the questions, and that Jesus' mere response was, you say that I am, when Pilate asked him if he was the king of the Jews. And, and it's this very thing that, that the Jewish leaders had went off on, where they said, you know, what further testimony do we need? You know, we've heard it from him ourselves. But Pilate didn't find this offensive. He didn't find any guilt in this that, that they were charging him with. But nonetheless, even though he recognized his innocence, he still sent him on to Herod. And, and when Herod interviewed him, what did he do? As the, the Jewish leaders were, were standing nearby and accusing Christ, what he did was he treated Christ with contempt. He mocked him. He and his soldiers likely beat him. They put a, a splendid robe on him in order to say, well, look at you king now. So now what kind of a situation are you in? And so it's that kind of a betrayal. It mocks the God of the universe. It mocks Jesus Christ who came for those very people to, to serve them and to seek after their salvation. And we, we find an emotional verse uh, few chapters earlier where, where Jesus looks on Jerusalem and says, Oh you, even you, if only you knew the things that made for peace. And, and these people just don't realize. And if, even if they do realize, they've rejected and, and they've condemned Christ themselves. And they've betrayed Him to the Jewish leaders and to the, to the Roman leaders who, who are over here. And so they both recognized his innocence, but yet gave him over to the request of the crowds. And I think when Luke takes us to the crowds, what we find is a very universal picture of our responsibility and our culpability for the death of Christ and for his condemnation during these trials. Luke takes us just from the Jewish leaders to where Everyone is now shouting around, crucify, crucify him. And, and so I think what Luke has to tell us is that there's a universal culpability and that we're right there. And what were they crying out for? They were crying out for a murderer to be released. They were crying out that Christ be crucified. And they were urgent. They didn't stop and they were demanding with loud cries. Loud, constant, and in-your-face kind of cries. Because they were relentless in their betrayal of Jesus Christ. And we know that Robert Hansen, was he not relentless in his betrayal of the United States? Did it not last nearly 20 years? Why did he do it? Did he do it for the money? Did he do it for the jewels? Not at all. You don't spend 20 years just for a million dollars. You can do a lot of other things to get a million dollars. They say he did it for the camaraderie. They say he did it for the acceptance. They say he did it because the, the Russian people he worked with would make small talk with him because they would give him acceptance and give him approval. 
perhaps some of these crowds, maybe they were merely seeking the acceptance of the Jewish leaders. We don't know. But, but we know that, you know, whatever their temptation was, they betrayed Christ. Pilate wanted to appease the Jewish leaders. He even told them three times after Herod had already sent Jesus back. We find that in, in verse 22, that, that it's a third time Pilate says to them, you know, I didn't find any guilt. I didn't find anything worth deserving death in this man. So why? What, what evil has he done? But the betrayal was relentless. And just like that, just like it was the Jewish leaders and the Gentiles, just like it was the, the Roman leaders and common people in the crowd, just like it was the very zealous and religious persons, it was also the non-religious people. There's a universal picture of responsibility and guilt for sending Christ to the cross that he was condemned here in these passages. And so we find that we're in that picture too. Just like Peter told in, in Acts 2 where he says, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified to the people he was talking about, people who, many of whom probably weren't even there at the time shouting. But we find that that responsibility is ours. That not only did they betray Christ, not only was it the Jewish leaders, not only was it Pilate and Herod, not only was it those crowds, it was us as well. We have betrayed Christ. How do we do it? We do it in our sinful behavior every day. We do it in our rebellious attitude. We do it in things that do not show love to God and to other people. We do it in all these ways. And we need to realize that these are not harmless attitudes when we rebel against God. They are deeds worthy of the punishment that Christ took on for us. Deeds worthy of the accusations that Christ received here in these trials for us. He numbered himself among the transgressors. He numbered himself in a shady trial and did not say very much at all. And so, as we not only repent of our betrayal of Christ and our condemnation of Him, we also need to, most assuredly, remember His faithfulness. Because He was faithful throughout this. This is just another segment in the entire Passion where Jesus shows a determined faithfulness to what His Father had called Him to do and what Jesus had volunteered to go through. Isaiah tells us that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. That he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. We, we find an obvious fulfillment in Christ's experience here. Before the Jewish leaders, he merely said, If I tell you, you won't believe. If I question you, you won't answer. And he merely said, You say that I am. And even when Herod was interviewing Christ, he didn't say a word. He answered him not, is what the Scripture tells us. In Luke 9, when Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem, Luke tells us that Christ was determined to go straight to Jerusalem on his journey, not going to the right, not going to the left, but that he was determined to do what he came for, even though it was difficult, even though it was a struggle like we find in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that He was faithful 
and that throughout this trial we see his faithfulness. He doesn't defend himself like he could. He doesn't condemn them like he could. He could have named off every single one of their sins, every single one of their transgressions, but he numbered himself among them. He chose to serve us and to serve them. And he is faithful and he continues to be faithful. Through that, through this culminating event of his entire ministry on the earth, he knew that he was bringing many sons to glory. That despite the shame of the cross, in fact Jesus even despised the shame of the cross and he endured it for the joy set before him to bring a people to his father whose sins would be paid for by the blood that he shed and by the condemnation that was transferred from us to him. And as we read about his condemnation in this passage, let's remember that that's us. That is us. But at the same time, as I mentioned, Jesus remained in control. He remained very composed, as we find in this passage. And, and there are other ways that Luke provides a vindication for Jesus, even among his terrible plight here. Jesus says, he says to them, uh, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. As in, this particular act of receiving their accusations and condemnations was working to usher in His glory and His kingdom. And what do we find during the crucifixion itself? He says to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. In essence saying, these things that are so terrible that He's taken on for us, He is being glorified even more so in these things. And so we should praise Christ for His faithfulness in serving us and in enduring these trials, even though they were the sham that they are. They were scandalous trials at the night time and He was not even allowed the traditional cross-examination. Jesus even told the Jewish leaders, you know what, if I were to question you, you wouldn't even answer. But we find that Jesus remained faithful despite what he was enduring. And so in light of that, and in light of what we've reflected about Jesus' accusations and his sufferings and condemnation, we need to repent of our betrayal of Christ. We need to repent of the things that we have done that in essence shouted, Crucify! Crucify Him! And as we repent of that, We need to know that He took the place for us. He took this place on trial for us. He took on the guilt. He took on our infirmities. He took on our sin. He was made a curse for us. He was made to be sin, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, so that we could become the righteousness of God. And as surely as we repent of that, we also remember His faithfulness. And we need to remember His faithfulness also as we serve Him. Because just like Luke presents in his follow-up to the Gospel of Luke, Acts, he presents that Jesus' disciples and His apostles in the early church endured these same kinds of betrayals. They endured these same kinds of accusations and condemnations. So, as His disciples, whom He 
took the place of, we need to know that we're going to experience these things. We're going to be betrayed. But we need to know that He is powerful and He is faithful and He has already done the work. And I'll leave you with that. And let me pray for us. Holy Father, I thank You for enduring for sending Your Son to persevere through the very suffering and condemnation that, that I deserved, that, that we all deserved, Lord. I thank You for that faithfulness to stand before these trials and to do so even though we betrayed You, even to do so while we were Your enemies. Lord, help us to remember that, to repent of our betrayal, and to remember your faithfulness. Lord, I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Amen.